This is 105.9 The Region, where parents talk and explore practical, proactive, and evidence-based solutions. This is Where Parents Talk with Leanne Castellino. Thanks for joining us here on 105.9 The Region. Welcome to Where Parents Talk. I'm your host, Leanne Castellino. On today's show, have you ever thought about how your child learns or how to learn better? Our guest today is a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia who studies human learning. Daniel Willingham is a researcher with a PhD in cognitive psychology from Harvard University. He's also an author and a father of four. In 2017, Professor Willingham was tapped to serve on the National Board for Education Services by then U.S. President Barack Obama. Professor Willingham's latest book is called Outsmart Your Brain, Why Learning is Hard and How You Can Make It Easy. He joins us today from Charlottesville, Virginia. Thank you so much for taking the time. Pleasure to be here. Before we dive into the book, you've been in this area of research and study, that is to say human learning, for some time. What strikes you most about what you've learned about how humans learn? Oh, that's such an interesting question. And there are I guess because I'm a researcher, there's so many things about how people learn that that I find absolutely fascinating. The thing that's fascinated me most in the last few years is exactly the subject of this book. And um, this is as much a, a thing about individuals and also a thing about how we teach children, which is that our expectations of children's ability to sort of bring something to the table in their own learning is appropriately really close to zero when children are in preschool. In other words, our expectation uh, is 100% that if children learn or don't learn, it's because of the teacher. It's up to the teacher to create environments for children to learn. By the time they're ready to graduate high school, um, our expectations are very high about how children should be able to uh, regulate their own learning. We expect them to be able to resist distraction. They should be uh, able to commit things to memory. If they read something that they don't understand, they should be resourceful in figuring out how they can come to an understanding of it. Um, So we have these very high expectations about their ability to learn and to learn independently. Um, But schools don't teach them how to do this. Uh, and that, that when I say it's sort of this intersection between human individual ability and then sort of the systems of how we uh, teach children, that's the, that's the bit about human learning that I've been obsessed with. So along those lines, what would you say that the average person should understand about how humans learn that perhaps may be game-changing for them? I think the most important thing to recognize is that your instincts about what makes learning effective may or may not be accurate. Uh, So for example, the thing, and this gets back to actually to your first question, one of the things that when I was in graduate school that got me, and I was not yet uh, dedicated to studying human learning, got me really excited, was learning that the desire to learn something actually has no impact on whether or not you actually remember it. 
And as a, someone who had been, you know, a student for 16 years at that point and had been obsessed with like trying to cram things into my memory and then learning like that actually has no bearing at all. Um, I found that fascinating. And it's one example of uh, a, a more general trend that what it feels like to learn doesn't always um, line up with what actually happens when you're learning. Anybody watching or listening to this interview is likely going to be staggered by that statement. So how would you go about breaking that down in terms of better understanding how we learn? What are some examples that you can share? Sure. So, I mean, again, if, you, if you're if uh, you selective about thinking about your everyday experience, you'll uh, that will really help you recognize when your memory works well and when it doesn't. So I mentioned like, you know, wanting to remember something doesn't seem to have much impact. And you kind of already know that, like when you meet someone, you of course want to remember their name, but you don't necessarily remember their name. And so you try a strategy like repetition and you, you know, you meet someone and you're like saying to yourself, Bob, 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 I got to remember this person's name is Bob. And that doesn't really work. And so what this tells you is desire doesn't really help. Sheer repetition doesn't help. Now think about what, when do you remember? So if you saw a movie last night and you, you know, mentioned that to me, I say, oh, what was the movie about? You're not going to say like, well, I don't remember what it was about. I didn't study it or anything, right? That it just sort of seems to come for free. You're going to remember that. Why is it that you remember movies so well? Well, it's because the, a movie is meaningful. Memory loves meaning. Anything that's meaningful to you is going to be much more likely to stick with you. And so when we're thinking about trying to commit something to memory, this is our number one sort of uh, tool that we can use is to find some way of connecting it to things that you already know. Uh, try and make this content meaningful. That's what's going to make it stick with you. This is where parents talk on 105.9 The Region. I'm Leanne Castellino in conversation with Daniel Willingham, university professor and author of Outsmart Your Brain. There may be parents, students, and certainly teachers among them watching or listening to this interview who may think, well, Professor Willingham, everything you say sounds great, but there are plenty of things that we have to learn that will probably have absolutely no meaning to us. So how do you go about navigating that? There are two things I would say. I mean, the first thing is, if it's not meaningful, I, that's the first thing I would try to address. Um, so if I'm an algebra teacher, uh, the last thing I would say to my students is, look, I know this doesn't make any sense to you, but, you know, the province wants you to learn it. And so, you, do, you know, there's going to be a test. You're, gonna, you're just going to have to cram it. That not only is that obviously terrible for student motivation, but this is probably the most difficult memory problem in the book as a as a memory researcher. The heart, if I were trying to think of the, the the most challenging memory problem, it would be to give you like shuffle a deck of cards and then say, here, I want you to memorize the order in which these cards appear. Um, so that's that's sort of job one. If you want to learn something, figure out what it means and set that as your goal. If you really understand what it means, memory is mostly going to come along for free. The second thing I would say is that there are times where, and sometimes this is teachers will say pretty much exactly this. I recognize that this isn't very meaningful to you, 
Nevertheless, I want you to sort of get this under your belt so that you can take the next step. Things are going to get meaningful, you know, in a couple of weeks or whatever it is. But right now you just you just need to memorize this. So we think about things like um, when children are learning how to read, learning the correspondence between letter sounds and letter shapes. There's not really any intrinsic meaning, but that's a very important thing for them to remember. So this is where uh, mnemonics can be helpful. So those are those little tricks, like if you've heard of memory palaces, where you you um, imagine like a, a, a space that you're familiar with, like uh, your home or something, and then you're trying to remember a list of items, and you sort of imagine walking around your home and you place items uh, at various locations. These are tricks that you use to make meaningless information more meaningful. Uh, and that's sort of our second uh, weapon of choice. First thing you want to do is, if at all possible, make it meaningful it, as a backup if you can't use mnemonic tricks. So what I'm hearing you say is that where it concerns meaningful learning, a combination of attitude and application is required. Absolutely. Attitude is really important. I mean, you need to have a can-do attitude. You need to recognize this may be difficult, um, and especially where students are concerned, they're so ready to compare themselves to other students. Um, and I always tell my students, it's like, yes, I know that you know some kid who this all seems really easy, and they don't need to study, and yet they're getting... Everybody knew some kid like that in school. We all found them really irritating and it was really hard. Uh, but most people aren't like that. For most people, it really does take work. Um, so expect that it's going to take work, but you can do it. Um, and the other thing is, it's really not um, helpful to compare yourself to other people because there's always someone you know, who seems to be ahead of you. There's always someone who's behind. And so the place to focus is really on yourself. Where am I relative to where I was yesterday or last week? Am I making progress? Do I feel good about that? That's where you really want your kids to focus. Certainly a very important perspective for parents to hear. Absolutely. Now, where I think it gets particularly interesting, the title of your book and the whole focus of it is the world we currently live in, where knowledge and new knowledge acquisition, you know, literally can happen in the palm of our hand. It's not solely relegated to the classroom. It's not solely in the mind of a teacher anymore. Yeah. Is that a good or a bad thing? And in how, in what ways, if at all, did that reality influence or impact your book? Generally, it's a very good thing. Um, access to more information, more ways to learn as, as an educator, like how can I be against that, right? That's wonderful. Um, the, the one area that is of a little bit of concern is when people suggest that because we have Google, people don't really need to know anything anymore. And that's, that's really not accurate. Um, and what someone like me, who's a cognitive psychologist, will tell you is you really do need knowledge, not just in your hand, you really need knowledge in your head. Um, Google is much faster than looking things up in books, um, but there are limitations to Google. Your brain is still much faster than Google is. So to take a simple example of the kind of thing you're looking up, uh, take vocabulary words, 
um, it still takes, you know, a, a, even if it's integrated into the ebook that you're reading, it takes a few seconds to sort of stop, look up a word, think about what it means, think about how it works in the context. And studies show that people don't have a lot of patience for that type of work. Um, what happens is you sort of, you know, if you're reading a story, you kind of lose the thread of the story if you, if you have to keep stopping and looking up words, right? So you really do want knowledge in your head for that reason. The second reason is that the, when you look things up, what, what your brain is much better at than Google is thinking in terms of context. So let me give you a simple example. Suppose you read uh, Dan spilled his coffee Trisha jumped up to get a rag. Now, what's unspoken there is why Trisha jumped up to get a rag. You are perfectly capable of understanding there's a causal link between these two sentences. Though it didn't say explicitly, Trisha jumped up to get a rag because Dan spilled, up, spilled his coffee and she's planning on cleaning up the spill. You understand that immediately. You're, you know a whole lot about what it means to spill things. And you're very, your brain is terrific at bringing up just the right knowledge at the right time. So if you didn't really understand, like Trisha spilled her coffee, Dan jumped up there, what does that mean? You type it into Google, you're going to get all kinds of information about coffee and spilling, but you're not going to get exactly the right type of information. So this sort of context specificity your brain is really, really good at, and the phone in your hand is terrible at. Uh, and that's another reason you really need knowledge in your mind. Time for a short break. More of our conversation about how to learn better when Where Parents Talk continues in a moment. Want to learn more about the show? Email info at whereparentstalk.com. Stick around. Leanne Castellino and Where Parents Talk will be right back on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to Where Parents Talk. Listen live at 1059theregion.com. Here's Leanne Castellino. Welcome back. We're talking about human learning and how to support kids to simplify how they learn. Everything from taking notes to writing exams. Our guest, Daniel Willingham, is a professor of psychology, a researcher, and an author. Now, Professor Willingham, as a teacher and a father with four children, can you tell us what strikes you in terms of some of the common pitfalls and pain points that you see with your students, perhaps even with your own children, that cause them stress and anxiety when it comes to learning? I think the thing that I see most frequently, both in my children and in my students, is feeling like they're putting a lot of effort into their schoolwork and they're not getting the results that they expect. And you know, they they they're ready to put in more effort, but they're not very clear on exactly where the effort should go. Um, so most frequently, they're, if they're getting bad marks, what they're thinking is, well, I need, I need to study more. And to them, studying means sort of sitting and, and kind of cramming things into memory. Whereas in most, most schools, there's, it's a lot more complicated than that. There are a lot more um, pieces that have to be in place in order for learning to really proceed well. They, they need to be uh, good listeners. There's a lot of teacher talk 
in most schools, and you need to know how to listen effectively. If they're in um, more advanced grades, they're going to be taking notes. They need to know how to take notes. Um, if they're taking tests, test anxiety might be a problem. So one of the things they, uh, they, they really need is a diagnosis of which part of things isn't going well. So, so often my students will come in, they'll say, I'm frustrated. And again, their answer is, I need to study more. And the first thing I say is, well, wait a minute, it could be that you're studying, it's just fine. And it's one of these other pieces that needs to be shored up a little bit. So that I think is the, the, the number one problem that I see, or the number one source of frustration is, you know, things aren't going very well, but you don't know exactly why, and therefore you don't know how to address it. I think that's such an important point that you're making. And as I think about what you're saying, I don't think I've ever really sat there and thought about the integration of all of those different individual acts that go into studying, you know, listening and note-taking and how all that comes together. But it's a, it's a very important point. Let's talk about your latest book, How to Outsmart Your Brain. It's been described as a, quote, revolutionary, comprehensive, and accessible guide on how the brain learns. In what ways is it revolutionary? I think it's revolutionary, uh, you know, without... Uh, it feels funny to say that, um, but I think what 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 I'm most proud of is that it is that it is comprehensive and that it it really um, it really is an attempt to to look at all aspects of learning. So there's not it's not just about committing things to memory. It's not just about taking good notes. There's a chapter about one's self concept as a learner, how you see yourself as a learner. Uh, because there's research showing that people who don't see themselves as learners, uh, one of the real problems they have is when there's a setback, when something goes wrong, they already think of themselves as someone who like maybe doesn't really belong in school. Uh, and so that you know, setback, like a failed test, really seems to confirm that. And that really speaks to their persistence, right? They think like, well, I didn't do it. Like a student who really feels sees themselves as a student, when they fail a test, they say, well, I need to work harder. They don't question whether or not they belong in school. Whereas someone who does question whether they belong in school, they're not going to persist and, and work harder on the next test. There's also a chapter on anxiety. 20% of students, I don't know what the Canadian figures are. They're probably pretty close to the U.S. figures. I know in the U.S. it's 20% of high school and college students have clinical levels of anxiety. Clinical level of anxiety, the definition is it's anxiety is bad enough. It's interfering with things that you feel like you need to do and want to do. Uh, so there's a chapter on, on dealing with anxiety. So that's the, that's the aspect of the book that I'm most proud of is that I've, I've tried to really look at the broad spectrum of things that can address um, uh, that, that influence learning and address them with very practical things that you can start working on immediately. Professor Willingham, can you share a couple of examples of exactly how we go about outsmarting our brains? Sure. First, let me tell you, you know, why, what, what that means. So, uh, and I, I think I alluded to this before. Uh, one of the things that was striking to me about uh, my students when I would talk with them about the strategies they employ is they all sort of seem to veer towards the same strategies, 
which is strange because they they all said like I just kind of invented this on my own. It's like no one told me to do this, and I realized that they were engaging strategies that feel effective to them in the moment uh, and also aren't that hard. Uh, and they sort of work a little bit, but they're just, they're not very efficient. And so this is what's meant by outsmart your brain. You have to recognize that what your brain is going to tell you is a good strategy may not really be the best strategy. So I'll give you one example. One of the uh, one of the chapters is about knowing when you know something. And this is kind of, when you think about it, knowing that you know something is very important when you're preparing for a test, because that tells you that you're done, right? Like you, you're just like, okay, here's this chapter. I feel good about this chapter. I think I know everything in this chapter. So you do this sort of self-assessment. It turns out that that assessment can be wrong. Um, and this is this was another thing that was very surprising to me when I first learned it, because the way you would think that you judge whether or not you know something is to sort of peek into memory and see whether or not the information is there. So, you know, if I asked you, do you know what the chemical symbol of uh, helium is? The way you would answer, yes, I know that or no, I don't know that is you would look in memory and see if there's something in there. Right. Well, that's a great way of doing it, but people use other cues as well. One of the most important cues is familiarity. So familiarity, the way psychologists use it, is exactly very close to the way people use it in everyday conversation. When you see someone out on the street and you say, that person looks familiar, what you mean is, I know I've encountered them before, but I can't really tell you anything about them. Right. You don't say like your spouse looks familiar, like in one sense they do, but like that. Right. You, you reserve that for where I know I've seen that before, but I can't tell you anything else about it. The number one way that students study is by rereading stuff. They read it over and over and over again. And what that does is it increases familiarity. But familiarity is not the same kind of knowing as being able to tell you something, right? So uh, it's one thing for me to understand when you describe something. It's another thing for me to be able to explain it and describe it. So this is where a lot of students go wrong in the, their judgment of whether or not they're ready for a test. They're studying by reading something over and over again. They see it over and over again. It feels very familiar and they mistake familiarity for the ability to explain. There are kids who are exceptional learners on one side of the ledger or the other. So how does what you've researched and what you've written about support that group of individuals? The principles of learning that I'm describing really are universal. Um, so the, uh, and this is um, something that can be really confusing when we think about schooling. We think of children as individuals, as of course they are. And you'll sometimes hear people say, sort of extend that and say, everybody learns differently. In one sense, that's true. And in another sense, it's really not true. I mean, everybody's got a brain and everyone has, you know, a, a digestive system. Everyone has a circulatory system. 
you don't really think of like, well, your digestive system may be totally different than mine. Your circulatory system may be to work, just operate in a completely different way. You know, I have a heart. I don't know about you. I don't know how your blood pumps or if it even does pump, right? And so the same thing is kind of true of the central nervous system. There's a basic architecture to the way the brain works, and there is a fair amount of consistency across kids. The ways that kids are individuals is more about what they know coming to the school, you know, to that first day of school um, and, and thereon, like um, what their experiences have been both in school and outside of school. So what they know and what they're able to do, there's enormous variation in that. There's a lot of variation in what they're interested in. But when you talk about like, why does the brain hold on to something versus not? So earlier in our conversation, I said, memory loves meaning. I would absolutely say like, that's true for everybody. And it doesn't matter whether you are like way off on one end of the spectrum where it seems like everything comes really easily to you or you're way on the other end of the spectrum where you really struggle with most things in school. There are a set of principles that are consistent across individuals. And that's what I'm really emphasizing in this book. During this pandemic, many parents have had the greatest exposure to how their kids learn probably ever. In the classroom, teachers, many of them have had to reinvent how to engage kids in learning, going from virtual to in-person. So against that kind of backdrop, what strategies can you suggest that may be helpful to not just relearn, but learn things in a new way for both the student and the teacher? Yeah, that's that's a, such a great point. And it um, it the, uh, the timing of this book is oddly um oddly apt because what what the book is really about is uh increasing student independence helping students be resourceful in learning on their own and this is something that we increasingly expect of kids as they get older it's also something that we very abruptly increased our expectations with the pandemic all of a sudden kids were at home and we were hoping that they were going to sit in front of a screen, uh, even though there were you know, there there maybe wasn't a, an adult nearby to uh, to encourage them to do that, um, do much more learning on their own. How much of that sort of thing we're going to see in the future remains unclear, um, but there's always been some of it, and there's in the future bound to be at least as much as there has been in the past. So absolutely, I think we should have all of the be aware of all the tools that are available to support our children in doing that independent learning. Professor Willingham, what would you like readers of Outsmart Your Brain to leave with? I think the main uh, takeaway is there, there are lots of tools that are available to problems that are sort of universal in learning. And so what I really encourage parents and students to do is experiment. Like there are all these different ways that you can approach it. There's not just one, you know, best way that absolutely everybody has to use. For each of these processes, I have between five and seven different tips, things that you can try. Um, and so experiment uh, and, and see what works for you and see where you get good results. That's the main thing I, I would say is, you know, remain flexible. Uh, be self-aware, remain open, and try things out and uh, see what works for you. 
Daniel Willingham, professor of psychology at the University of Virginia and author of Outsmart Your Brain, Why Learning is Hard and How You Can Make It Easy. Thank you so much for your time and your insight today. No pleasure. Thank you so much. Be sure to catch the full video interview with today's guest on whereparentstalk.com. The podcast version is also available wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. That is our time. I'm Leanne Castellino. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us next time. Sign up for Leanne's parenting newsletter and so much more at whereparentstalk.com. This is Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region.